Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled The Law on the Heart. We begin today by presenting a popular theological notion. This notion is that there is a remnant, or perhaps more than a remnant, of God's law on the heart of every human being. This is often presented as such that even after the fall of mankind, from the fall of mankind, that every single human being has some degree, some remnant of God's law on their heart, even though they're dead in trespasses and in sin. Now, as we present that to you today, our intent on today's broadcast is to examine from Scripture whether or not this is true. Is it true, then, that a remnant of God's law is on the hearts of every single individual in the world, even though Scripture obviously presents concepts such as that man is totally depraved? Can we say that there is or appears to be a remnant of God's law upon the heart of people? And there are basically four points that we want to consider on today's broadcast. The first thing that we want to establish today is our position on that matter. And from the beginning, we'll tell you that no, we do not believe that a remnant of God's law is upon the heart of every human being for two reasons. First of all, we're totally depraved. And second of all, there's something special biblically about having the laws of God written on your heart. As we begin to explore that notion in just a moment, we'll see how interesting that concept is and how that's ascribed to God himself at a very special moment in the lives of every one of his children. But suffice it to say, no, we do not believe that God's law or some remnant of his law is written on the heart of every human being. Now, as a first point You and I, prior to salvation, are dead in trespasses and in sins. We're not merely sin-sick. We're not merely struggling with sin. Certainly, we all struggle with sin, even after salvation. But prior to the new birth, the Bible describes us as being dead in trespasses and in sins. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, "...and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins." We were dead in trespasses. To me, it seems very unlikely that a remnant of God's law would be upon our heart when we are actually dead in sin. That would be some degree of life, and yet we know that we are completely and totally dead in sin, so much so that the ways of God are foolishness unto us. We have no fear of God before our eyes, and the way of peace we have not known, according to the book of Romans chapter 3. So from Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and in sins, we observe that prior to salvation, our state was one of death. We were dead to the things of God, including his laws. Also, Paul asserts that Before salvation, the only way to know that certain things are sinful is because someone gives the law, the command to you externally. Now, hear me out on this point. If I had it written upon my heart as an unsaved natural man that it was wrong to murder, someone wouldn't have to tell me 
that murder is wrong. I would simply know that murder is wrong from the inside out. And yet, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul actually says that the only way that he knew behaviors were sinful is because the law had commanded him. Notice this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, Paul says the only way that he knew prior to salvation that lust was wrong is because God's word said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, by the way, this is why there are cultures all through the history of the world that commonly practice things that the Word of God considers sinful and immoral, and they practice these things without a blush on their face because they did not have any comprehension of the fact that it was actually sinful and wrong. We know that something is sinful because the Word of God teaches us that it's sinful. Now, certainly we see God's fingerprints all around us in the world. The things that God says are wrong are proven to be wrong simply by virtue of studying human life. Murder is wrong. It causes pain in the lives of others. But without God's Word, you have no foundation to stand on to prove that it's wrong. Why is it wrong to kill a person when it's right to kill a cow and eat the meat of that cow? Without the Word of God, you have no answer for that. There's no reason why killing one thing is any worse than killing another thing, except the Word of God gives us that instruction. Paul didn't know that it was wrong to sin, except the commandment of God had come to him externally, teaching, thou shalt not covet. In other words, prior to salvation, the only way that a natural man knows something is wrong is through someone telling him either that it's against the law of man or that it's against the law of God. We only know something is unlawful when the law comes to our ears. Now, regarding this point, you might think, well, good, then take the law to them so that somehow they can hear the law, have a conviction of sin, and turn and be saved. That's often presented in today's time as the method of salvation, according to some people. But would you believe that in this same passage, Paul says in verse 8 that sin took occasion by the commandment and wrought in him all manner of concupiscence? What does that mean? That word concupiscence is a big word that we don't use every day. The word concupiscence means forbidden desire. And so if I'm a natural man and I hear, do not murder, the sin in me hears that commandment and it wants to violate that commandment, sin, taking advantage of the commandment, works in us all manner of concupiscence or forbidden desires. If a natural man hears, you shouldn't look on a person with lust, he thinks, well, I'm going to look upon a person with lust even harder now. If he hears, don't rob that bank, he's going to think, man, I really want to rob that bank. Now, that doesn't mean that he always acts on it, which we'll comment on in just a moment. But in his heart and in his mind, when an unregenerate, when an unsaved, when a natural man hears a commandment of God, that sin in them makes them want to violate the commandment. And again, it works all manner of concupiscence or forbidden desires in us. There's an easy social study you could do if you're a parent. Take a random drawer in your room and put nothing in it at all. And tell your children that you do not need to look in that particular drawer and there's no significance to it, there's nothing special to it, they don't know what's in it, they don't know if it's something good for them or bad for them, 
And more times than not, the one drawer they're going to be more drawn to, whether they ever open it or not, is going to be the drawer you told them not to open. Perhaps an example that's more relevant to us as adults is obeying the speed limit. Now, there's not anything less moral about 55 than 60 or 60 than 65 or 70. It's not less moral to go 80 miles an hour as a matter of principle. But the laws of the land that govern us as we drive are given for the public safety of everyone who uses the roads, and they're designed to be driven on in a certain range of speed. But if you and I see 55 miles an hour, here we are as even saved people, but still possessing the nature of sin we inherited from Adam, you and I inherently want to push the envelope and go a little bit faster than that sign says that we can go. We instinctively try to get around obeying the commandments that are given to us, and this comes directly from sin in our members. Paul says here in Romans chapter 7 that he only knew what sin was because the law had told him, but then when he heard the law, his sin made him want to break the law that he heard. It's no wonder that Paul ends this chapter, Romans chapter 7, by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you and I realize the depth of sinfulness in our own lives, not even considering the lives of those around us, we would be so thankful and grateful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so much more than we maybe have ever been understanding how sinful we are by nature. By the way, along these lines, what then restrains bad behavior among society in general? If there's no remnant of the law of God in our heart, because again, Paul didn't know lust was wrong except the law said, thou shalt not covet, what does restrain wickedness in the world around us. Well, there's a couple of institutions that God has made that have an active duty in this. First of all, the institution of the home. Parents must teach their children right from wrong at a young age. They must discipline them, and in disciplining them, the children learn that there are consequences for bad behavior, and that molds them in such a way that even if they're not regenerated or quickened, even if they're not born again, they recognize that it's simply pragmatic from a self-preservation standpoint to keep the commandments that are given to them, whether it be to pay your taxes or don't rob a bank. As discipline breaks down in a society, you notice that bad behavior begins to spread through society. This is connected. You cannot sever or disconnect this correlation between the strength of the home and parenting and teaching right from wrong and the behavior of adults as they grow up and begin to live on their own. Beyond the institution of the home, you have the institution of government. What does the Apostle Paul say about the powers that be in Romans chapter 13? Well, he says that they're to be a terror unto evil, adding his remarks to Timothy Government is to be a terror unto evil that you and I might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all honesty and godliness. Government is to terrorize evil in the world so that people that don't go about doing those things can live a quiet and a peaceable life. What restrains bad behavior like that in the world? Well, the other institutions that God gave, the home and the government. Now, the second thought that we want to share with you along these lines today is perhaps an anticipated kickback to that first premise that I've asserted. 
Again, that premise is no, we're dead in sin, and we don't have the law of God written on our heart prior to salvation. The objection that one might receive to that is, well, what about Adam and Eve then? Because God tells them as he creates them and places them in the Garden of Eden that they may eat of every tree of the garden in Genesis 2, but, and I quote, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And as we begin to see what happens unfold, let me just say that I don't believe that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil had any sort of magical properties or supernatural properties necessarily. The reason that it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because God said, do not eat of it. Simply by virtue of the command not to eat of it made it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not that the chemical content of the fruit made someone a crazed sinner, but it's simply that God said not to do it. And if you do that, then in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. And we know that corporal death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned, but please understand that at that moment in Adam's life, he died a death in trespasses and in sins. So God gives Adam and Eve this commandment, and as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, they took of this fruit Eve after the beguiling of Satan, and she eats of it. She gives to Adam, and he eats He eats of it of his own free will and choice. He was not deceived. She was deceived, but he knew exactly what he was doing. And in verse 7 of Genesis 3, we read, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made of themselves aprons. When they ate of the tree that God commanded them not to eat of it, you notice that something happened. They knew their eyes were opened. And so let's look at the effects of this tree or eating of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked, and they were ashamed because they were naked. Does this mean that the law of God was then written on their heart? Now, prior to this, understand that the law of God had not been written on Adam's heart. We're going to learn when the law of God is written on your heart today before we close the broadcast. But prior to this, Adam and Eve were upright, natural men. And when we say natural men, we have reference to both genders, just simply using that term in a general sense, mankind. They were natural people. And by natural, we mean they were as they were made. You and I, before salvation, are natural men. And as natural men, were in the state that Adam plunged humanity into when he sinned. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, because they're foolishness unto him. The gospel is folly to them that perish, but it is power to those that are saved because we are natural men. Prior to salvation, the word of God is foolishness. What is a natural man? It's a man in the condition that Adam placed him in. Adam, at this point, is a natural man, but he's not yet sinned, so he's an upright and innocent natural man. When Adam, as a natural man, sins, the state of being a natural man became a sinful man. And all of us are here through natural conception. We're here because a mom and a dad had a baby, and we all come from Adam. We're all the descendants of Adam. Natural men after the fall are wicked and sinful, but natural men prior to this time period, which would only be Adam and Eve, they're not sinful. They're just simply upright, innocent, natural men. But again, we clarify, they're not yet spiritual 
men. A person who is spiritual is a person who is born of the Spirit, according to the biblical definition. Now, I know that all sorts of things pass as spirituality in today's time, and all kinds of people claim to be spiritual, not religious. But biblically, biblically, to be spiritual is to be a person who is born of the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is within them. They are spiritual as opposed to natural. And they have the nature of the Spirit as opposed to merely the nature of the flesh. They have both the nature of the Spirit and the nature of the flesh after the new birth. After this fall of mankind, when Adam violated the law of God, and it's by one man that sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so this is securely placed on Adam's shoulders. Adam bears the responsibility for this. After Adam fell, he and through him all of us possess sin in his nature, in our nature, and because of that we know or are acquainted with evil. Now, there are three aspects that I want to share with you about this knowledge of good and evil. Aside from that, again, he knows evil because now it's a part of his being, whereas at one time he was upright and innocent, Now he is fallen and sinful. They have knowledge of good and evil. Mankind has knowledge of good and evil in that they now have an example of evil. In other words, evil exists in the world, and so they have knowledge of good and evil because evil exists. Number two, they knew they had knowledge of good and evil because they now knew the consequence very personally for evil. They disobeyed the law of God, and through knowing this consequence, they knew evil. They could understand intellectually evil because, again, they were living through the consequences of it. Number three, seeing the evil that they perceived and now lived with the consequences thereof, they had something to contrast with the good. Just like the light and the darkness early in Genesis, the light shines through darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. God puts a separation between the light and the darkness. He calls the light day and the darkness he called night. Seeing this evil that Adam now has a part of his being gave him something to contrast with the uprightness that he saw in God. And so In that sense as well, he has knowledge of good and evil. And this knowledge, this ever-present sin that's a part of his being, it again caused he and his wife to be ashamed when they looked and they saw their nakedness. There was an embarrassment between the two of them, and again, this came as they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I want to be very, very clear that the law of God being written on a heart, the most inward core of your emotional being— When the law of God is written on your heart, this is a very, very special thing that the New Testament, and even allusions in the Old Testament, place happening at the new birth. Now, Adam was not a born-again man. Adam was a natural man. At some point after that in his life, perhaps he was quickened. He and his wife, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. A lot of people assume that he was. Some people assume that he wasn't. That's not for us to decide. That's between him and God. But at the point of his fall, he was merely a natural man, upright, but a natural man nonetheless. At the new birth, the laws of God are written on your heart, and unlike before, where it took an external law for us to realize and comprehend that something was wrong, now, after salvation, we know it's wrong from the inside out. And this is an important distinction that needs to be made and needs to be understood. The law of God being written on the heart 
isn't some holdover from the Garden of Eden, but it's something special and miraculous that occurs when God teaches us to know Him at the new birth. Now, where do we get this concept? I want to turn first to the book of Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about Gentiles that kept the law, even though they didn't have the law, and Jews that had the law that disobeyed the law. And he describes them in verse 28, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And the he here that he calls a Jew that is spiritual is a Gentile that doesn't have the law of Moses, but did from the heart the things that are contained in the law, because the law of God was written on his heart. And we find that very clearly in verse 13. It's a parenthetical statement, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Now, a lot of people read that and they say, well, that's talking about Gentiles who had the law of God as a remnant held over from the Garden of Eden, and because they had this law on their conscience, they, in general, in society, did things that were right in the sight of God. But if you know anything about world history, you know that there were all kinds of terrible and deplorable things that were contrary to the law of God that they did, and they didn't do many things that they ought to have done. No, look at this Gentile who had not the law of God in a physical sense, but had the law written on his heart, who obeyed the law of God, even though he did not have the law of God, and keep that individual in mind when you come to verse 28. The person who is a spiritual Jew of the spiritual circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart, with the law of God written on his heart of Romans 2, 28 and 29, is the same character of Romans 2, 13 and 14, the Gentiles that, even though they were non-Jews, they did the things contained in the law because of the law of God being written on their heart. Why did they do that? Because they are spiritual Jews with the law of God actually written on their heart, because God has written his laws upon the hearts, even of people who did not have the law in that day. They didn't have the word of God in that day, but because God had written his law in their heart, they did the things contained in the law, and God wrote his law on their heart at the new birth when they were circumcised with the circumcision of the Spirit, not of the letter, not of men, but of God himself. And again, the last three words of Romans 2.29, but of God. They were born of God, and because they were born of God, God has written his laws on their heart. And because God wrote his laws on their heart, they did the things contained in the law, even though they did not have the physical copy of the law that they could obey. It wasn't even written to them. It was written to the nation of Israel. Now, by the way, God had a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue in the Old Testament. 
just like he does today. If my theology can't explain passages like Revelation 5.9, Revelation 7.9, or Romans chapter 2 in Gentiles that had not the law but obeyed the law because of the law written on their heart as they were spiritually circumcised in the heart of God, then I need to dig a little deeper into God's Word because this is teaching God's sovereignty and salvation even in a day when Gentiles lacked the Word of God that was given to the nation of Israel, the oracles of God, as was their advantage in the Old Testament. Paul would refer to this fact in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, "...for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart." The church at Corinth had God's laws written on the fleshy tables of their heart, as it were. And that, again, is metaphorical for God changing a person's moral code at the new birth, writing his law upon their heart. They now know right from wrong from the inside out, not, as it were in the law, from the outside in. And I refer you back to Romans chapter 7 if you'd like to revisit that point from earlier in the broadcast. Lastly, along this line of thought, in the book of Hebrews chapter 8, we read that this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, and we know that this is the house of Israel as it relates to spiritual Israel, all of those who are called of God, those who are given spiritual circumcision, those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are born again, those whose mother is the Jerusalem from above, which is free. Remember in the book of Galatians, those that believe and know the Lord are counted as the seed of Abraham. And as Paul said in Romans, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. This Israel in Hebrews chapter 8 refers to people that are born of the Spirit of God. This would be the elect of God's spiritual Israel. He says of them, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is the new birth. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Every single heir of promise, everyone that God the Father chose in his Son before the foundation of the world, will know God through the new birth. God himself does this teaching. Jesus references this in John chapter 6. Isaiah is the passage he quotes when he says they shall be all taught of God. All of God's children shall be taught of God from the least to the greatest, from a little aborted baby to an aged man, every heir of promise. All of God's children will be taught to know him, and this is a teaching that only God can do. Again, they shall not teach every man his brother and every man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord. I can teach you about him, but I can't teach you to know him. At the new birth, you know him. Christ enters your heart. As Jesus says in John chapter 17, that I should give unto them eternal life, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To have eternal life is to know God. To know God is to have eternal life. And when you have eternal life, the laws of God are written on your heart, and you know Him. Now, the last point that we want to bring out today is found in the book of Romans chapter 6. According to Romans chapter 7, what happens when a natural man hears a commandment of God? Well, he wants to break the commandment. Again, sin, taking occasion by the commandment, worked in him all manner of concupiscence or forbidden desires. Romans chapter 6 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, 
but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. What does Paul say here? We obey the external word because of the change that God has made on our heart when he writes his laws on our heart and on our mind. You and I obey this form of sound doctrine that comes to us. We obey the gospel of Christ because God has changed the condition of our heart from death in sin to alive in Christ. Quoting a dear friend of mine and a fellow pastor, Elder John Burkett from South Georgia. This passage in Romans chapter 6 is one of the great verses to support obedience from life rather than life from obedience. In other words, you and I don't obey to get life. God gives us life, and that life enables us to obey. So to answer our question, does every man have the law of God written on his heart? No, While they have a knowledge of good and evil, sin is there in them. The law of God being written on the heart is something that is special to those who have been born of the Spirit of God, and it creates a moral and ethical change in their behavior. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received the broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.